Thanks for downloading our podcast. You can check out more of our episodes at facebook.com slash this house of cards podcast or on iTunes. Hello, everybody, and welcome to This House of Cards podcast, an unofficial podcast about the Netflix hit show House of Cards. My name is Tyler Moss, and I am your host here today, here with Chris Husted, co-host. What's up, party people? What's going on, buddy? Not much. Uh, just getting ready for another winter storm out here in the, uh, well, I guess you're in the Midwest, too. The I'm Plain States, if you will. Yeah. Um, so you're going back into work tonight and sleeping at work, so I'm assuming you're probably not drinking anything. Is that true? Uh, <laughs> what? That, should I not be? <laughs> no, I, I'm fine with it. I was just double-checking. What are you drinking? Okay, no. I have bourbon on the rocks right now. <laughs> I think that's reasonable. You're going to have to sleep until early next morning, so that way you avoid, you know, right. the snow and everything. I'm drinking a Snowdrift Vanilla Porter. Oh, delicious. To your, this is to your Snowdrift. So, <laughs> cheers. As always, we want to encourage you to leave us comments and questions or anything else, reviews on iTunes. Um, also, you can go and like us on Facebook at This House of Cards Podcast. You can also email us questions or comments at This House of Cards Podcast at gmail.com. Um, well, this is episode three we're talking about here today. Um, I just want to dive right into it. Um, well, actually, okay. So, over, for, uh, that's not true. I want to ask you a quick I mean, how overall impressions of this episode compared to our first two? Um, uh, where's it stack up? Um, I think it's uh, a pretty solid one. I think we definitely have a good idea of who Frank is as a person now. This one reinforces it, but it also kind of throws a stick in the spoke of his wheels, if you will. Um, this cruise control that he had been on uh, to, you know, everything was falling into place for his plan, his master plan, which whatever that is. So this is kind of a, a, a nuisance, um, uh, a, a little bump in his path to getting this education bill passed and doing forming whatever house of cards he's trying to stack up together. Um, but it was also uh, it, it was nice to get to know him in his hometown, you know, uh, before he went to. Uh, well, I guess he said he's been in for twenty years. So where he came from twenty years ago when he first got into office, so I believe it was Gaffney. Uh, yeah, Gaffney, South Carolina, Carolina I think yeah. you're right there. Mm-hmm. So I, I always love episodes like this where we get to see our main character return home. Though That always creates some good drama and a good story. And it definitely uh, succeeded here as an episode, I thought. What do you think? It did. And I think, I mean, he cleaned up. It was a small road bump in kind of the whole span of everything. And once again, I mean, you know, we thought maybe this was going to be, or at least I thought maybe this was going to be, you know, um, a hiccup that we see you know, continuing for him or kind of the first, you know, indication of things maybe going wrong down the line for him. But not really. I mean, he kind of takes care of it. And once again, we kind of see what a charismatic and awesomely strategic person he is. Right. Um, but I do have to say, I, I and we'll talk about this going through, that I have some, I feel like there might be some foreshadowing about future issues coming up. Right, um, right. I think um, it, before we delve too far into, do you watch Girls? No, on, on HBO. No, no. Okay, I don't have HBO, unfortunately. <laughs> the first, the first episode or the first season of Girls, there was an episode where Hannah, the main character, as a twenty-something, returns to her hometown, which we've all done at some point. Uh, Post college, you go live in the city or wherever you're going, and then you move, you go back home, and you see 
things as they are and who the people are there and how they've changed or how they really haven't changed yet you've changed a lot and that is exact and that's Hannah's experience when she goes back home and this is exactly what Frank experiences too he talks about how his people are humble people and obviously he uses that to his advantage uh, and he uses humility but he sees everything just as it is when he left for the most part um, True. and I mean, he's we- obviously changed a lot and we learned kind of in this episode like how his roots built him kind of to be the person he is and how Gaffney formed him, informed him as a person, you know. Um, and I think those will be interesting things to talk about along the way. So let's go right into the opening scene. Now, I thought it was interesting that, you know, the first two episodes have kind of opened with Frank monologues. Um, first right. one, obviously, being the dog thing. Um, second one being the barbecue smear across the newspaper. Um, this... One or wait, this is our is this our third or fourth episode? Sorry, third episode. This is our third episode. Okay, so third episode. This is about um, this one. He died immediately. We start in the conference room with the education bill. Uh, right. I mean, so it's like we're it's. I almost felt like we were starting in the middle of a scene for a minute. I kind of felt like I had to double check my Netflix and make sure that I hadn't accidentally skipped ahead. I felt a little bit disjointed <laughs> the way it was starting. It was like they wanted to get to so much stuff they threw us into it immediately. Uh, did you feel a little disjointed by that? Uh, not really. I, I kind of like that we jumped right into, you know, the the work on the bill because they've been leading up to that the last episode. So the fact that we were in the conference room hammering out a bill, I, I was okay with it. You know, I, I'd rather be thrown in there than get more lead up into what they needed to do for the bill. I like the the tension and the drama in a in a conference room anyway. Oh, I did too. I just, uh, yeah, I thought it was interesting and different than what we've seen so far. Um and so obviously he's in there with the teachers union. He's trying to work things out. And then he kind of uh, gets, I don't know if they're taking a break or something like that. He gets called out of the room and uh, the staffer shows him a video online. And we figure find out that this um, former political rival of Frank's back in Gaffney is blaming Frank essentially for an accident that happened in which a 17-year-old girl was driving her car down the f- highway and saw this giant lit water tower the peach um, at night and she is texting her boyfriend about how weird it looks or something and then she drives off the road and gets in an accident and dies and so it's kind of become a i mean the staffer says right out it's a smear campaign for this you know former political enemy to try to get a one-up on frank potentially for the next election or whatever to gain some sort of political advantage and right. we find out his name is orin orin chase is that right i have his name last name somewhere it was uh, orin something yeah is Oren. I was excited that we got this though. This was, a, you know, it introduced a storyline and another character that would have conflict with Frank. It was, and I do like that we got a little bit of a different environment than the Washington environment we've kind of had the whole time so far. Um, it was a little bit of a change of pace. Um, and I also want to say, I think it was funny how they kept alluding to how the peach water tower looked like a butthole. <laughs> that was kind of like, <laughs> yeah, or or and not, it, oh, or not alluding to it. Eventually, they just downright say it in that conversation. Right. The they conversation had. they had was such a old. Like they well, they talked about old boys' clubs, but it was such an old boys' club type conversation. Right, exactly. Well, if the woman's lying on her stomach, oh no. <laughs> um, but Frank, no, like basically, his staffer, his staffer is pretty shrewd about this, and I thought it was interesting that the staffer was like, "You have to go take care of this. This is a smart thing to do." And Frank listens to him because I mean, we know that Frank really trusts this guy, and normally, you know, with 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 Rousseau or with you know different people. 
Frank's definitely the one telling them what to do, except with Claire, obviously. But with everybody else, he's the one in control telling them what to do. But he trusts his staff or any trusts his opinion. When this guy says, you need to go take care of this in South Carolina, Frank listens and he goes take care of it. Right. Right. Although he does, ha- he does do that little aside to the camera where he says, I hate that small, this small ball crap. This, you know, we see, he, yeah. we know Frank likes to work with these big issues that we, you know, we talked about like forming his legacy down the line and not this right. minor stuff that is like, Really, probably most of kind of the minutiae that politics are really about. In the it long is. Run, you know? Well, I forget what he says. He says something like along the lines of, "It's not just about this is this is uh, his chief of staff. Uh, I never remember his name, but he says to Frank, it's not just about the girl dying or something like that, or 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 his or his or his um his keeping his seat safe. I think as a congressman of that district." It's about the parents, and for a second there, I was like, "Oh, like that's good." You know, we're we're considering that these parents lost uh, this uh, family, or this this family lost their daughter. But then, like within like half a breath later, he's like, "You know, no, it's about the lawsuit the parents could throw against you, Frank." It's like, ah, oh, no, yeah, there it is, there it is. Nope, shrewd, shrewd, yep. shrewd. <laughs> um. And so Frank basically knows that he's got to go back down to South Carolina now. You know, it's going to anger the teachers' unions, but he's going to do it all remotely. He's going to juggle all these different balls in the air at once. He's going to keep this house of cards from crumbling. You know, that's just what this show is all about is him, him juggling all this stuff. Um, and, you know, there's, you know, we see a little kind of montage of him going there and everything like that. But one thing I want to point out is, so um, we meet this, like, uh, I guess it's a security detail for him, or it's just one guy, his name's like Edwards or something like that, you know. A substitute guy that's not supposed to be going with him. He plays a small part in this. But one thing I thought is interesting is it's his like substitute security guy, but he knows Frank knows his name. Yeah, that's and right. And I think this he just says last name. I just think it says something about Frank that like it's just one of those little mini things that they show to show like how much how in control he is. Like it, it does. It also makes me think that later on down the road, this guy's going to be a big character, or he's going to be someone of note. The the new security guy, just because. We spent a lot of time with him in this episode, and we kind of I, get to know him. I had kind of, yeah. And I thought, I, we'll talk about when we get to the end, but I kind of, I was surprised, or I was wondering what was going on. It seemed kind of weird. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> okay, so Frank's going down to South Carolina. In the meantime, we kind of have um, this other subplot going on with Claire and this um, the sick Jillian Asian woman. Yeah, um, this sick woman named Jillian who um, is basically, from what I understand, like is a part of some other kind of water charity that basically um, Claire, it's a smaller one than, than Claire's, but this woman is very accomplished. Um, and Claire basically wants, basically confesses that they fired everybody else at her charity in order to hire, um, her. To hire her. So we kind of are figuring out a little bit more about where this this kind of Claire subplot was going, which you didn't really see too much of the first two episodes. Um, and, you know, Claire shows how, um, not manipulative, but, you know, the woman says something about, you know, I don't feel comfortable with somebody working with a charity that hires professional photographers to take, you know, glossy photographs and hang up on the ball. And Claire was like, oh, yeah, well, you know, basically by working with a photographer, I was able to get you know, however many million in donations to our charity. So sometimes, you know, the schmoozing in the business sense is good. And we kind of learned that, like, this woman, you know, doesn't even have health insurance. Like, she's making these – she's kind of being a martyr. But Claire's kind of saying, like, you don't, have, you don't have to do that. You know, there's ways to be a smart business person and successful at the same time. 
the sick thing was a little ridiculous. Well, it wasn't ridiculous, I guess. It, it made sense. She's obviously we find out she's not on healthcare, but it was a little heavy-handed. <laughs> I I agree. <laughs> she was a little. Like, she like <laughs> her her body like rasping coughs and stuff. I thought it was a little over. I thought it was a little overacted too in both actress's part. But yeah. I get the point of it. Um. And then, of course, we go back to our intrepid reporter, Zoe, um, who has met the, or meets the owner of the newspaper, um, a woman named Tilden, who basically says how much she loves Zoe's profile and Catherine Durant, who's going to be the new Secretary of State, um, and kind of tries to pull Zoe's source out of her. And Zoe has this young journalist line about what do you what do you want my source of my integrity i liked that line that was pretty cool i mean obviously her integrity isn't completely intact because of the way she went about getting her source <laughs> but as a journalist i respect keeping your sources private and secret unless you know court mandated to release it but it is her editors and stuff you know and like and the the, the thing with her is though she she's so green and so fresh there that maybe they ought, well actually we kind of find out that they at least her editors don't have as much trust in her whereas most reporters with their editors i think at you know that are gonna have sources that zoe magically has at her at the stage in her career most editors would already trust you know say that you, the 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 other female um the chief political correspondent for that newspaper janine she, janine yeah janine yeah if she had a secret source i think the editor would probably trust her more so just because she's been around and proven herself and put in time zoe i think anyone might be a little skeptical especially as a journalist um about who her source might be um that being said i i would probably trust my editor with my source because how i mean i confide in my editor all the time about all my stories (laughs) I don't understand exactly. what Zoe would lose. Well, out of this. well, and exactly, and you know, the editor is obviously going to want to protect the source too, and you think that she would want kind of, um, especially being so green, she would want kind of their editorial advice on a lot of this stuff. Right. I understand not telling the publisher or the owner of the paper, but her editor. But the editor, yeah, you'd think she would be. I don't know. Um, why? Why, would, why in hell would he print her stuff to begin with if she had never written a political story? And all of a sudden, she has this. You know, I guess because she found the. The shredded bill, but still, yeah. So she had she had that, I guess, at least. Um, but we kind of see, you know, the owner tells the editor to move Zoe's story to page one, and we yeah. kind of see him look a little bit pissed here. And so this is kind of the hinting of what's going to come in later. And I can only assume this conflict is going to continue to kind of blow up between them. And we kind of saw, you know, she was alienating um, that Janine in the last episode, and also that other editor with the glasses. And so now this is the editor in chief. So she's like quickly getting too cool for school at this at the inquirer here and right, he calls I, her out on i have her a feeling arrogance. she's not going to stick around very much longer you know yeah oh god especially the last scene she she is uh she has quite an, the ambition for her career she certainly does um in the meantime frank is in south carolina and he has all these good lines as they're driving down the street about how this is a, you know um you get this the part of the country one? is like bibles barbecues and broken backs that's exactly what the, I wrote down to. The alliteration there, and everything's thicker here, from you know blood to family and all this kind of stuff, and how he how he hated growing up here, but now he's kind of come to appreciate it, and how it's formed him a little bit. Right. 
And then they drive to the Peach Water Tower. <laughs> it does look kind of ridiculous. Um, it looks like a butt with a little nugget coming out. <laughs> the, the stem, I guess it's supposed to be. And he asks the, is it the mayor what he thinks of it. And the mayor says, looks like the sun's shining where it shouldn't be. Um, and so then from there they go and talk to this Oren guy, his, his former political enemy who's you know, in very southern style on the porch in like a rocking chair drinking iced oh, tea. so stereotypical. I loved it. I loved that. <laughs> That's what I'd wanted it to look like. And Frank's there with his arms crossed on the lawn. Um, and basically, you know, they start arguing a little bit and Oren accuses Frank of taking money from peach farmers at one point to keep the water tower up. Whereas Oren was going to tear it down before. And that's kind of the position that Oren's taking against Frank that, like, Frank had fought to keep it up. And it's the water tower's fault that the girl died in the car crash, all that kind of stuff. And so Frank tries to bribe Oren with a Congress seat in a different mm-hmm. district that's coming open. Uh, but the guy, four. Right. But the guy won't budge on it. Um, why, why, what was your impression about why he wouldn't take, take that initial offer? I I don't know because I didn't know I don't know enough about that character outside of the fact that he's tried to take Frank down a few times in in that uh, district in Frank's district. So I, I didn't know yet, really. What about you? My, Did you have any ideas? My, my guess was just that he was really he's just so bitter at Frank. Like they have mm-hmm. had some really, you know, there's clear there's a lot of history here, um, as we see when Frank like really gets in his face later on. It's like they've got quite a backstory. They know each other quite well. It sounds like they probably had some very vicious attack campaigns. And this guy is bitter and looking like. He cares less about his own political advancement, it almost seems, than he does about making Frank look bad, you know? Um, so from... Nothing gets there, done there, though. And Frank scolds him, though. I love that. Yeah. Yeah, and Frank scolds him. And in the meantime, in the meantime you know, he's on the speakerphone with the unions for the school, um, for the education bill. And they're debating whether or not they should, you know, the unions are saying they're going to walk if there's money, you know, if they have charter schools in the bill. And Frank's saying what a cornerstone that is. But obviously, I mean, at the same time, you know, he's here in Gaffney and it just, he's handling it all. He's juggling. He's handling it all pretty well. Um, (laughs) And then, you know, back, he's in this little room with all, this is the scene we were talking about earlier, with kind of all the... Uh, what we kind of assume to be the big wigs of Gaffney. And they're debating the pros and cons of going to court with, with the parents of this girl who died. Um, and, you know, they discuss whether or not they should pin the water tower on the peach farmers and everything. Um, and this guy kind of goes off on this whole thing about Frank trying to swoop down and and from on high in Washington. And he hasn't been there for forever. And now he's going to come down and try to solve everything and make himself look good. Frank totally shuts this guy down. Yeah, it does. Um, it's just like, well, if you had a better solution, why didn't you? Why didn't you come up with something over the past week? Why did I have to come down here in the first place? So, totally shuts this guy down. Basically, just makes it look like you know. It, it, I think you're really illustrating like what a, um, just kind of how Frank compares to kind of these small, slow-moving people in this town. Like, he's just all, he's so one step ahead of everybody else. You know what I mean? Right. Um, so he's like, okay, here's what our plan's going to be. We're going to come up with some money for the settlement so that way they don't take us to court that we can offer the parents. We're going to put up billboards on the highway that say don't text and drive. We're going to stop lighting the peach at night so that way it's not a distraction. And we're going to use that money to start a scholarship fund in the girl's name that died. Brilliant. So <laughs> fast. And so Frank's he's on top like, of it. 
Oh yeah, he just has this whole plan nailed out. And so, you know, he's moving forward and then we see this funny conversation where they discuss whether or not it looks more like a sphincter or a clitoris on the beach and everything like that, which is a little bit of added comedy that was just like, I don't know if that was just like David Fincher adding a little bit of levity to everything or, you know, it trying was, to make sure things don't get too intense. Right. It was a little silly conversation that, you know, five old white men, well, I guess not all old white men, but all old men uh, would have, you know, behind closed doors, and, never in front of a woman. In this small town. Yeah, yeah. In exactly. a small town. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You're right. It was kind of like the, the boys club kind of conversation. I love that. Well, if she's laying on her Tommy, you see. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was really funny. Um, so uh, back to Claire for a second. We have this scene where, you know, we've seen so much of her running. There's, you this, know, woman's uh, car, this woman's heart has got to be so healthy. Yeah, and she's... Um, wh- what I was going to ask you is, like, why are we seeing so many scenes of her running? I think, I mean, all we see her do is either interact with Frank over the phone or smoking cigarettes out the window. Two, she's at work firing people. And three, she's running. So it seems like she has no friends or Frank is her only friend. She has no life outside of her work and Frank. So she just, I guess, runs. Is it like supposed to show like how like well disciplined she is and everything and like what a type A regimented ice queen kind of person she is? That's that's kind of the feeling I get. I, yeah, here's a fun question I was going to ask you. Life. She always has the earbuds in listening to, you know, her iPod or whatever. What song do you think she's listening to? Oh, damn. That's a good question. I, if I would thought about that, I would have had a funny joke prepared. I don't know. I what feel, do you think she's listening to? Oh, I feel like it's got to be something. Uh, it's definitely not something mushy. It's something like. No, I was thinking like Alanis or something. Yeah, it's. I mean. But that's a little too grungy. I feel like she's cleaner. Maybe she's listening to like classical music or something. On those. Oh yeah, people are gonna be like, right? People are gonna be writing in. Why were? We, why the hell were you talking about what was on her iPod for five minutes during your podcast? <laughs> but these are the questions I want to know. Maybe I it was like Slayer know. or something. It's she's listening to heavy metal as she goes in, or but, rap. I could see her listening to like. Jay-Z or something. No. Uh, she's, she's, I don't know. She's a little bit tighter than that. I'm not sure. We should think about this some more. <laughs> but um, when we have Robin right on the show, we will ask her, what do you think is on her iPod? On Claire's iPod? Maybe we can get her on an interviewer and then we can ask her what's really on her iPod. Um, Okay, so she's running through the cemetery, and she has this scene where, like, an old woman chastises her for, like, running in a sacred place. And this, like, really seems to disturb her. Right. Uh, I I mean, why did you think it disturbed her so much? I think it was kind of – it shook her up a little bit because maybe she's ha- never had any regard for respect uh, besides the respect that people sh- should be showing her and her husband, perhaps. I don't know. It was It was something that she never even considered – that maybe that was disrespectful and she when she she kind of it shook her up a little bit she's like what and then she really started thinking about it i don't know like it kind of like it was like an uncomfortable dynamic that she was not familiar with that someone right. would uh, like chastise her about something cuz she's so put together and so like does not make any mistakes like we said like all she does is work and exercise <laughs> i mean she's she's trying to be like the mo- and like 
She's beautiful. She's trying. She's like the model of perfection, and so mm-hmm. it's like mm-hmm. it, to be chastised for anything. It's like right. totally off putting. Like something she, she's really good at. Yeah, and she like thinks about it for days. You know, afterward, like this kind of little thing haunts her. And maybe we kind of see about what drives her a little bit about you know is this striving for perfection kind of thing. Um, so also we have a little bit of a subplot with Russo going on here right. and his girlfriend who we know is like his secretary or not even secretary. She's better. She's like higher up than a secretary. She's more, she's yeah, she's not an assistant. She's more like a lower advisor or something maybe, but also right. like a, like a um, worker be for him. Right. And she basically says to him, you know, they're at a dinner and she says, you know, if we really want this relationship to work, I think that it would be helpful if I worked someplace else instead of in the office with you. Because the dynamic there is, um, I don't know, they have to hide their relationship and make it a secret and it's like subordinate and boss kind of thing and, you know, uncomfortable. Um, So she says she wants to work in, you know, she's got a job offer from the Speaker of the House's office and she's seriously considering it. That be, I mean, in my mind, why would you not take that job? Absolutely. Even though I mean, her sounds... boyfriend is a congressman, that'd be ridiculous not to take the speaker's job. Right. I mean, it sounds like it's a great opportunity for her and everything, and, and a young. good opportunity for them to kind of advance their relationship a little bit and stuff. Um, okay, so I want to get back to Frank in the in like we have this vigil scene where he's here to talk to the parents of the girl that died. It's at the church. Everyone has candles out. It's at nighttime. Um, we have the same where like the security detail tells him like you can't go into that crowd, sir. And Frank kind of gets all high, high and mighty, and is like, "You don't. T- all I want to hear from you is yes, sir. I don't want to hear a damn thing about you well, know. If I, I get stabbed in, at a, if I get stabbed at a vigil, then I am a hero, and that is the best way to die." So that was amazing. Yeah, that that that's such a. Uh, um, I mean, I don't know. In light of G- Gabby Giffords, it's a little, ugh, but. Um, he he speaks through strategy the whole time. Anything that can happen that would benefit him. Oh yeah, he doesn't. I mean, it's not about his safety; it's about his image. That's what's more important to him: the mm-hmm. legacy. You know. Um, and he asks. I mean, so he goes into the crowd and he hunts down the parents and he tries to apologize and it, like totally gets attacked, mainly by the husband. husband the wife shuts just it seems. Down. Mm-hmm, he seems to be the bitter one. The wife is just kind of like. I mean, I think this is kind of. Uh, you know, she seems to be more more in mourning, not want to think about anything else. But he's very bitter and angry about it, and is looking for he a scapegoat. Him. And right now, it's Frank because Oren's kind of planted that in his head. We find out that Oren is there, kind of whispering in the guy's ear. He shows up and and literally whispers in the guy's ear, puts his arm around him. Yep. Mm-hmm. And so Frank kind of says, "Oh, this didn't go as well as I thought." But he does happen to see the Reverend of the church they're at, and oh, well, he has a relationship with this guy before, and he asks the hey, Reverend, "Hey, buddy, Wells, can you do me a favor?" Can you do me a favor? It's all about connections. And so I want to jump ahead to this scene at the church because I yes. think it is a. Oh, well, OK. So um, in the meantime, so before this, that's the next day first. So I just let's follow Frank for a minute. Um, Frank is still on the phone, you know, discussing the charter schools and stuff by phone. And he eventually like puts himself on mute while he has some guy talk because he's bored of it all. Um He's talking with Claire about uh, the tulips in the front yard and how she's never gardened a day in her life, that kind of stuff. And um, she's going to tell him about the old woman who said something to her in the cemetery when he starts getting texts from Zoe. So she's like, okay, well, go, you go talk to her. Um, Zoe's texts are pretty flirtatious. 
Oh yeah, she's we, she's getting a little flirty. And I thought I mean, I thought she figured it out. She he already shut that down, you know, the first time they met. But she's getting a little bit very more close to flash or Snapchatting him a boob or something in, in a minute. He seemed to be he seemed to be okay with it though. Like he thought found it I don't know if he found it amusing or intriguing. I don't, I don't know. know if he liked it or he was just humored by it. Mm-hmm. But either way, they're hinting at uh, you know something. But it also shows how desperate she can she is. She needs her next story. Oh yeah, she's gonna she's trying she's gonna do what she can to pull the story out of him. I mean, it's not so like her. she can't write other things in the meantime, Zoe. Right, exactly. And then she says that she's gonna go on CNN and blow him a kiss the next day. Ridiculous. So she's on. Zoe is pissing me she's off getting, in this episode. She's getting interviewed on CNN and with uh, what's um, her name? You know, they're. At, I forget her name. I don't remember. Oh shoot, I forget her name. Oh, anyway. But they're as they're asking her about female trailblazers and like it's kind of quick to start already be calling Zoe a female trailblazer. She's been on the scene now for a month tops. May, I mean, not even maybe she's had like two or three big stories. You know, nothing too much yet. Um, and then she, she, you know, she's throwing out compliments to Janine, the political reporter, throwing out compliments to Tom, her editor. The hammer. Kinda, mm, the hammer. And this is kind of when she gets herself in trouble because um, she says we call him the hammer because he's always double and triple checking facts and all this kind of stuff. And this is kind of a stupid question I thought on the broadcast journalist part where she's like, is this a workable model in the digital age? And yeah, I, mean, and I was like, here we go again with this argument. Mm-hmm. And then we go into the declining readership, and she says how the Herald is not ad- adapting fast enough to declining readership and stuff like that. But, I mean, I don't know. I don't feel like that was a fair assessment because, obviously, you kind of need to be on top of your facts or else, why, I mean, you're going to get sued or something like that. And I think that's clearly what he's concerned about when she's not even going to tell him her sources or anything, especially when she's not telling him her sources. Of course he's going to be that careful. He, she hasn't given him a good reason to trust her yet, you know? Yes, I agree. So she's kind of disparaging the newspaper on air, and he is not cool with that. More on that later. Um, I want to talk about this scene with Frank. Oh, okay, so Frank and the church. I had to say that I thought this was potentially my favorite scene of the whole series so far. This is Frank the at his best. And his worst. Um, <laughs> simultaneously, which seem to parallel each other quite often. Um you know, the reverend says we want to have – we have, you know, our congressman here to come up and say a few words. So Frank comes up and he gives this incredible speech about hate and how, like, so impassioned he yells out, like, I hate you, God, and how so, we, so many of us want to say that all the time. Just the crowd gasps. Monologue. He goes into this monologue about how his father died young and how he really uh, – how he was, like – coping with that and how he was so frustrated and angry with God. And then we get this little aside monologue where he's like, actually, my dad was really weak and pathetic, and I'm kind of glad he died when he did. He <laughs> so barely like, scraped the surface of life, I remember he said. Yeah, he has this great line, and he like, he totally, you know, he's, he, we think that he's so in the moment and passionate and emotional, and he's just like, turns to the camera, and he's like, gives this little aside, and then he's like, back in character. It's just like, I do, shows I kind do of love the, it when he does a little eye roll so, to the side now. Oh, those clear two-facedness is just amazing. It's funny, too, because I know he's totally manipulating not only this family, but this whole congregation and, in turn, the whole town of Gaffney. And yet I'm still kind of, like, hoping he pulls it out because he's so damn charming 
that I want him to oh, succeed. Oh, he's endearing. Even though he's looking me in the eye and telling me that he's lying, basically. He's an anti-hero. I mean, he... Yeah. And uh, he pulls you in. He totally does, and he get you know, what is faith if it doesn't endure when tested? And, like, we cut to the parents and see the tears streaming down their face. I, I don't know. I just thought that was an incredible scene and, like, supremely acted by Kevin Spacey. Absolutely. Kevin Spacey was killing it. He's so good. I'm curious to see when the next award shows run around if... If he'll I mean, be up we, for something. If, I would hope If so. they would be willing to nominate someone for, like, a Netflix show, I think they should totally. Me I mean, too. Definitely. That'd be interesting. Mm-hmm. Um... <clears throat> So let's talk about Rousseau for a second again. Obviously, he uh, has this scene where he's in the bathroom and he, you know, before we kind of saw him just like using his girlfriend's toothbrush to brush his own teeth, not really giving a shit. But this time he kind of like, we see him for the first time like being concerned about her feelings. And he takes his little bag of cocaine out, dumps it down the sink. And so this is like, he is going to be like, this is kind of a wake up call for him that she wanted to switch offices, you know? I don't know why this is a bigger wake-up call than, like, Frank totally fucking him over and stuff like that, but apparently there's something about this that is a bigger wake-up call to him. And he comes out of the bathroom after dumping the cocaine down the sink and asks her not to take the job. I mean, why do you think this was such a wake-up call for him as opposed to the other stuff? Well, I don't think this will be the end of his drug-partying bad boy days, but... It's at least suggesting to us that he doesn't want to be that guy, right? And that, like you like you mentioned, the uh, the idea of a stable relationship with his, um, I guess, girlfriend, but secret girlfriend, his assistant, uh, gives him enough incentive to try to change his way, as you know, at least in the moment, and it gives him the balls to go out and say, you know, I I don't want you to take that job. Mm-hmm. I I can't, I mean, I think that he's kind of an interesting character because, like, obviously very different than, so different than Frank. And in some ways, I feel like he's kind of a foil to Frank because, you know, we see in Frank someone who is so in control of himself and control of the people around him, um, the master of every situation, whereas we kind of see Russo being a bit of an id. You know what I mean? It's like he can't control his own behavior he can't control i mean he, he's just kind of a raw beast a little bit more and so i you know i can't quite put my finger on this character yet but i, I don't think, think it's we know enough about his background either to all we know is he parties and he's sleeping with his you know subordinate and but he does kind of have feelings for her and he does a lot of dirty work for frank i mean there's not much background on him yet but i'm sure we will get that yeah, I just think it's kind of an interesting juxtaposition putting him next to Frank because I feel like they're two, two sides. You know, obviously both congressmen, but very different personalities here. So we kind of see two different styles of politician almost completely. Right. You know? I also feel like this sets up. Um, I for, I don't know her name right now, and that's pretty bad. But his girlfriend, if she doesn't take this job at the speaker's house, I guarantee something down the road is going to make her regret not making having made that choice to go take the speaker's job. I think you're right. I think you're. I think you're very right. Another thing I want to say about Rousseau is it's like we know that Frank is like drunk on power, and that's obviously why he loves being Mm -hmm. in Congress. He loves having a role in big legislation. It's not clear to me why Rousseau is a politician yet. 
Yeah. Like if he wants to, if he kinda has this party boy personality, what is he doing in politics? He doesn't right. really seem to have it a passion sense for it. It makes sense if it's nepotism, seem... but that's all I could think of. He, he seems more to me like a lawyer or a Wall Street banker or something like that. I don't understand Definitely. what he's doing in... So you're right, I want to learn more about his character kind of. Because I do uh, want to care let's... about him, but I don't care about him too much yet either. Mm-hmm. I, we just don't know enough about yeah. him yet. Um, okay, so let's talk about Zoe and her conflict with Tom, the editor. He says that we want you to promote the news, not be the news. This is something we talked about before because she kind of is the one – I mean she's been creating the news instead of necessarily reporting the news and kind of what the role of journalists are and everything like that. And he's pissed about with her about kind of giving out you know intimate going-ons going about the inside of the paper and everything like that and tells her not to be so arrogant basically and bans her from TV interviews for some period of time. Did, but the, so the phrasing ask... of that whole of that whole interaction was like, because remember she she comes out and says like you know you don't need to treat me like a child I'm an adult. And he's like That's you haven't right. proven yourself as an adult yet, so I'm not gonna you know treat you like that. And then what? Oh, then and then he when he's when he bans her from TV, he says the way he says it is no TV for a month. And it's like that is such a parent thing to say. I love the way that was worded. Well done, writers. And then. Yeah, it was. It was great. And she gets pissed at him for not giving her any respect and says, if you think that me asking for respect is me being immature, arrogant, or something like that, then that's just ridiculous. So I was the question I have here for you is, is, is her editor justified? Yeah. She does accuse or insinuate sexism happening, though, and I think that's going to lead her down and him and the whole newspaper down a pretty dark road. If she's already she alluding to that, that, I mean... And, I, and that's that's, be that's something they asked her, I think, in an earlier interview. Is like, do you have women working at the paper? And she mentions, like, I think this was last episode. So they kind of do hint at that before. Is sexism going on in the newspaper? Mm-hmm. So maybe that is mm-hmm. something that's going to be a big right. Deal. When she mentions in her interview, she says, you know, there's a lot of pioneers or, or that went ahead of me. Um, even though Janine got it five years ago, that's still pretty recent uh, for a woman to break in as a chief correspondent for a news organization as big as uh, a Washington newspaper. Right. Exactly. Um, it's a backhanded so, comment I mean, or a compliment. Right. Mm-hmm. And so they kind of, um, I do think that sexism could have a role coming up here. Um, so back to the question, is the editor justified in how he's treating Zoe? Yes, but this conversation that they're having should have happened during the first story. Not now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he did wait too long. I, I mean, she's I've clearly gotten too big for her riches, riches yeah. so to speak. I agree. She shouldn't be on TV after three stories. That's I, that's ridiculous. And she has a little bit of an attitude. I mean, she, she has one source. You know? Yeah. I'll give it. It's a good source, but like she's working independent. I mean, I, don't, I just don't feel like that's how it should function within a newsroom. She's not working as any sort of team with her editors at all she's like kind of like a wild card yep. here um which she only continues to prove later on in the show um <clears throat> so let's see here um frank's claire visits, oh, claire i was gonna say claire visits gillian the sick woman at home and basically pushes her to go see her, her doctor and Sweet talks her into joining her. Right. She um, says all the right things, just like Frank does. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, They're cut from the same cloth. And so I, I'm interested to see how this relationship goes. I don't think that the conflict between the two of them, they seems like 
Claire is very business driven and this woman is very selfless and I think that we'll see some conflict between the two of them going right. forward. So I just wanted to She named they named drop Google so many times in this episode too. Even yeah, the owners. When they talk about or the founders. Oh yeah, it, it, like she knows them personally. Yeah, yeah she needs only their first names. <laughs> because Jillian could have gotten a job at Google, but she chose not to. Instead she went and got malaria in Africa or something. Um, yeah, so she Good did choice. all the background. Good choice, Gil- Jillian. Yeah. So, Claire gets her way. In the meantime, we see this scene in which he, Frank is on the phone for the Ed Bill, and the unions are walking because of the charter school thing, and he tells basically tells his staffer to lock the doors and make sure they stay there till he gets back there, because he's almost on his way back. I like how he did this while making sandwiches. Yep. I mean, just continues to show how his extreme, incredible ability to juggle and multitask. And um, goes back and starts talking to Jessica's parents in the living room, and they have their little prayer circle before the sandwiches. And um, you know, the mom is showing Frank these pictures of Jessica, the the girl, and the dad is still angry. It says there's nothing Frank can do about it. So Frank walks them through, you know, the settlement money, the scholarship, car safety measures by putting up ramps, and then finally he says, like, if it would make you happy. I'll resign right now. Just tell me the words and I'll resign. This was quite a gamble on his part. Obviously, he was not really going to do it if they said yes. But he can read people. Right. And he knows his people in the South. And he says it right here. If you can humble yourself before them. You know, these are proud, noble people. And if you can humble yourself before them, they will give you anything you want. So, I mean... And he did. He knew exactly. He played it exactly right. He knew that even suggesting that... that uh, offering up his resignation wasn't gonna that wasn't gonna go anywhere. He says you got to make meaning from the meaningless, and convinces the parents, and gets his way once again. This minor com I mean this conflict that we you know kind of could have been a big issue for him totally put to bed. Maybe not totally. Um, that's where I want to say Frank goes and sees Oren, who's on his little riding lawnmower. And basically says to Oren, well, we found out that you made it so they didn't build guardrails on the freeway here. And if there had been guardrails, she wouldn't have died. So we could pin this on you in a heartbeat. So don't think that you have any more leverage against us. Also, I happen to know that the power company was thinking of coming right through here. And they could tear your house down. So if you don't want them to tear your house down, you're going to stay quiet too. And third, I'm still going to help you get elected in the 4th District as congressman, even though I don't like you very much. Yep. It's always good to have a friend across the aisle, he says. So we learn that he's a Republican. Orrin is, I think. Orrin is, yes. And, yeah. and so Frank kind of uh, basically totally beats this guy down. But I'm wondering if there is a second season, you know, maybe we'll be seeing more of Orrin down the line. Yeah, I don't Who know. Orrin was kind of lame. I hope it's someone else. <laughs> yeah, he was kind of weak and boring and was beaten far too easily. Yeah. <laughs> Not nearly as nefarious. Or We haven't seen a worthy adversary of Frank yet. Right. I feel like there's got to be somebody, but I don't have... I mean, other than, like, Claire, if she decides to go against him. But so far, I feel like we haven't really seen anybody who's conniving enough to combat him. Right. Frank you know. cleaned this mess up pretty easily. I mean, not easily, I guess, but pretty quickly. In mm-hmm. a day and a half. He cleaned it up super quickly. And he picks the two lips to take back to Claire. Um, <clears throat> you know, kind of wrapping up the Rousseau plot line for this episode... We have uh, his girlfriend works up, or wakes up and he's not in bed, um, which is normally, I'm assuming, a bad sign for them because he's typically out partying or something like that. But nope, he's in the living room working on a Sunday. 
um, typing on his laptop, and basically trying to be a new man. And she basically is impressed by this and says, "If I stay, if I stay, with, you know, working with you, it's because I want to." And so he kind of has a smile, like the changes he's making are, you know, working, moving the relationship forward. So, like I said, I, I agree with you. I do not think this is the end of his partying. Um, I'm kind of, I'm going to predict that somehow Frank kind of puts, you know, Frank putting him in possibly bad situations is going to kind of push him back into it. That's a guess I have. I don't know. We'll see. Um, so Frank and Zoe Zoe wants on has the potential to get a spot on Nightline and wants Frank's advice and he kind of puts her through this like um, mental you know uh, mental exercise where he says close your eyes and picture yourself where you are Nightline's on are you on it and she's like well yeah of course I'm on it pretty much um, and he says you know you shouldn't work anywhere you're afraid of getting fired from you know, if you're treading water, it's the same as drowning. I thought that for was for both a great of line. their um, careers, for both their industries. Yeah. And what an uh, like, I don't know. That kind of encapsulates both of their ambition in a single phrase. You know what I mean? Um, I'm. What do you? I, I don't know. I felt like Frank is now giving her kind of this mentoring relationship. Their relationship is evolving. Mm-hmm, definitely. I mean, where do you kind of see this going? I don't know. I think he. Sees it one way, she sees it in another way. He's using her as a tool, she's using him as a ladder. Mm-hmm. But they kind of like using each other. They kind of seem to get a kick out of the other one. Right, right. So, I, as of right now, I don't know, Zoe's a little immature, a little dependent, um, very needy. Frank's strategic and calculated. Zoe's just looking for the next story and the next fix to keep, you know, making her star shine brighter. Frank's calculated and planning everything just so. So he'll use her when he needs to use her. Whereas Zoe's kind of dependent on him to keep going. Here's a question for you. Are they going to consummate this sexual tension that is so... I don't know. I kind of hope not. Just because it still seems weird. I, I don't think they've got that type of a chemistry. I don't think they do either. I'm gonna say, I'm I'm gonna guess though that they are. I feel like that's what they're building to. I don't know if I agree with that decision uh, on the writer's part. I don't like that, but I, I feel like I feel like the way Frank's character is being built right now, he's smarter than that. Um, he wouldn't put himself in that position. He doesn't seem like the kind of guy that would let his Russo's the sort of guy that would fall into a position like that. You know, Frank is too calculated right. to do that kind of thing. Zoe, I would put it past her though. I mean, she's she's already tried to use her sexuality to gain. Actually, in two different ways, she's used it to try to get Frank to be her source by showing her boob cleavage. Her boob cleavage. What other cleavage? <laughs> um, and she's also, you know, kind of hinted at, you know, sexism against a woman in the workplace. Uh, so the other side of her sexuality where, you know, she's being uh, taken advantage of instead of exploiting it. So she, she's, right. she's naive, mm-hmm. but she's, she's, she's willing to use whatever... Uh, she can to get her way, which is to become a superstar. Yeah, it fits with her character. I don't feel like it fits with his character yeah. as much. I do have a question for you. Uh, okay. What do you think the significance of the flowers were? Because we sure, sure as hell saw a lot of these damn tulips. Well, first of all, I want to say that I thought there was, I don't know, I felt like I was wondering what was going to happen when, you know, Claire is kind of bothered by this whole um, cemetery issue, a little bit shaken up. Frank isn't there. I thought maybe, I don't know, did you think for a moment, I thought maybe that, like, 
Claire was going to have a thing with the security guard. For, or like I thought, yeah, she was going to walk in on him after she saw the teenagers making out in the cemetery. Um, that she was going to be a little horny or something and try to get with the uh, security guard. But like I said, because we've seen spent a lot of time with him, we're definitely going to... He'll, he'll come back around, it, I bet. I, 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 my guess... Okay, here's, here's one idea about the flowers. Is the flowers kind of represent... The transition Frank and uh, Claire together have made from kind of Gaffney to Washington, because you kind of see, or at least Frank in particular, excuse me, in particular, because you kind of see these flowers down in the southern environment flourishing in, you know, his front yard or whatever, kind of in their not native. I mean, they're they're planted flowers in the garden or whatever, but he kills them. You know, you see him to Washington. Right, you see them down, and yeah, yeah, you see them down in in you know his his front yard, and he cuts them up, and he and you see them you know in this um, manufactured home where they're like everything is perfectly straight, and you even see like when the vase is a little bit out of you know off angle, the the guy like makes sure that the vase is perfectly straight and uniform and everything like that, and kind of like just a symbol of like these tulips, which maybe I don't know are flourishing down in the south or something like that, coming up and, like, conforming to this kind of strict, straight Washington, you know, political scene. I don't know. That's that's one guess. How about you? What do you think? I have no idea. I, I was trying to think of it and I think about what it could mean. and I, I couldn't really. I mean, I, like, you, like you mentioned, it was definitely something about bringing a little bit of South Carolina to... Um, to DC, but then I didn't really understand. I mean, she planted them a year ago, and he didn't remember. It's the only time she's done this type of a thing. So is it that they're changing a little bit, and she's learning new things? I don't know. They're, they're, yeah. I have to think about it more. I agree, but there um, is. And so, what was the deal with? Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Go I would say it was a little interesting. The dichotomy of an older woman scolding Claire in the cemetery, and then her like awkwardly enjoying seeing the teenagers like hooking up uh there like, that's what i was gonna ask you too is like what the significance of that was I, it was like maybe an age thing she, it was she wants to be younger was it so, and she enjoys that more than being yeah was it lady? like maybe or was it something like along the lines like um after kind of being scolded by the old lady she got some sort of satisfaction about of seeing them like she's not the only one disrespecting not, the cemetery yeah, yeah, something along those lines, like, um, or like in a more, in an even more flagrant way than she was from just jogging through, you know, something like like that, like. Yeah, I think it, I that don't could know. be it. I don't know. We'll have to find out. We need. We're le- we're finally starting to learn more about Claire, though. So that that's great. I like that. Yeah, some insight into her character a little. Well, I mean, just interesting how much that whole yeah that little like remark bothered her so much, you know. Um, anyway, we got to wrap this up because I got to go to work. <laughs> yeah, okay. Sorry. Well, um, real quickly, rank, rank this episode. Uh, I think? give four out of five because we got to learn a little bit more about Claire. I love, like I said, I mentioned in the beginning, I love seeing uh, main characters return home because you do learn a lot about them and their roots. Um, mm-hmm. And I thought this was successful in giving us more information about Frank and where he's from. Uh, and it also, you know, was a little bump in his uh, cruise control. Um, uh, voyage to the top uh but mm-hmm. there i mean there are there were little holes for me which zoe's character is just becoming confusing and i don't 
really understand why she got so much face time in this episode uh, with the exception of just trying to remind for the, the, the storytellers, the director and the writers to remind us that she's still around trying to do things. Cause outside of the interview, she kind of just spun her wheels and flirted with Frank. Yeah. Yeah. Exit. Yeah. I'm not loving the Zoe plot right now, but I do have to say the Frank, like I enjoyed the Russo plot somewhat. I enjoyed learning more about Claire and I especially loved the Frank plot back in Gaffney. I thought that was awesome. Makes me want to give this episode four and a half out of five stars because that church scene was so awesome. Was so great. well acted. So greatly directed. I, I loved it. I agree. Awesome. I did, so. Awesome. Okay, everybody. Well, thanks for joining us again. As always, you can please uh, go check us out on Facebook. You know, give us uh, reviews and ratings on iTunes. And you can email us with questions or comments. It's uh, houseofcardspodcast at gmail.com. We hope you all have a wonderful week, and we'll be back to you soon with episode four. Later. All right. Bye, everybody. Oh, Twitter. Oh, shit. Just say it. <laughs> You can find me on Twitter at TJMoss11. Where can they find you, Chris? I'm on Twitter as well, at Chris Husted. Chris with a K. Bye, everybody. Bye. <laughs> that works. I don't want to be your friend. I just want to be your